Welcome to Talking Tax, a podcast brought to you by Bloomberg Tax. In this series, we sit down with leading tax practitioners who have contributed to the Bloomberg Tax journals, which cover a variety of topics of interest to attorneys, accountants, and other tax professionals. We really appreciate you being here and hope you enjoy today's discussion. Hello, this is Andrea Ben-Yosef, and I am with Bloomberg Tax. We are here with another podcast of Talking Tax. Today, we are here with Alan Toshensky. Alan started the Toshensky Law Firm in 2015. Prior to that, Alan was Deputy Associate Chief Counsel for the Employee Benefits at IRS and a Special Counsel at IRS and the U.S. Treasury Department. As Deputy Associate Chief Counsel, he supervised the attorneys in the National Office of IRS Chief Counsel who deal with all aspects of employee benefits law. Prior to joining IRS, Allen worked for several major law firms in Washington, D.C. Today we are talking about wellness programs, the regulations surrounding them, litigation, and the interplay between the agencies that govern them. And this podcast is based on Allen's article, Designing a Wellness Program, Recent Guidance from the IRS and EEOC, which was published on September 1st in the Compensation Planning Journal. So, Alan, hello. Hi, Andrea. Thank you for joining us today. I know there's always a lot to talk about in wellness programs. So the first thing I just want to say right off the bat that is on all the tax reform bills that we have going through the Senate and the House, as of now, is there anything that would affect wellness programs? haven't seen anything that will directly affect wellness programs. There's a provision in the House bill that would eliminate the medical deduction. That's kind of an individual tax issue, and it's not in the Senate bill. So at this stage, there wouldn't really be much that would have an impact on wellness. Okay, great. So we can go in and talk about, about the wellness programs in general. So first of all, what are wellness programs? That's a good question. Wellness program is a very broad term, and it encompasses a great variety of programs that are designed to improve employee health. At one extreme, you've got programs, some programs that just consist of the employer providing brochures or a website with information designed to help employees improve their health. The employee may also make available things like healthy food or an access to a gym. Uh, to help employees. Other wellness programs are more intensive. Some of them involve screening activities, which may consist of employees filling out a questionnaire, which is uh, often called a health risk assessment, or it may involve the employer actually administering tests for things like cholesterol. Uh, In some cases, the employer provides incentives to employees Uh, to participate in the program or to fill out the questionnaire. Uh, The employer may also provide incentives to employees to try to achieve some of the goals of the wellness program, such as completion of a walking program. Uh, When employers do that, when they provide incentives, they need to consider the tax implications to employees. So what tax benefits are available for wellness programs? Well, there are, there are no tax incentives that are specifically for wellness programs. What is available to wellness programs, if they can meet the requirements, are some of the incentives that are available more broadly for health plans uh, provided by employers generally. And there are several provisions of the Internal Revenue Code 
that allow employees to exclude from income things like health insurance premiums paid by employers, reimbursements for medical costs from employers or insurance companies, or amounts that employees elect to contribute to a cafeteria plan. Point to keep in mind here is that each of these provisions has specific requirements, and you've got to meet all of those requirements in order to qualify for the favorable tax treatment. And that applies to wellness programs as well as any other aspects of health plans or cafeteria plans. What limits do employers need to be aware of to obtain these tax benefits? Well, there's uh, a chief counsel advice memorandum that was issued by IRS last year that's very helpful in figuring out whether your benefits qualify for uh, exclusion from income by employees. And that memorandum walks through some common types of benefits and incentives that may be offered under wellness programs and explains the tax the tax treatment. Some of the benefits offered under wellness programs qualify as medical care. And if it qualifies as medical care, which is a term of art, then the employees can exclude the cost of those benefits from income. Probably the most common types of wellness program benefits that would qualify as medical care would be the cost of screening tests or the cost of smoking cessation programs. So, for example, if you have employees take a cholesterol screening and give them the results, they don't have to include the cost of that screening and income because that's medical care. Uh, A second type of wellness program benefit may consist of payments that the employee makes either to the employee directly or for the benefit of the employee. If they make any cash that the employee receives, pretty much regardless of the amount, will be taxable to the employee under ordinary circumstances. Uh, There may also be, though, payments that the employer doesn't give to the employee but makes on behalf of the employee, and that could be such as things like paying for the cost of a gym, uh, which would be also be a taxable benefit to employees. So the general rule is payments to employees or on their behalf, cash payments, will usually be taxable to the employee. There's a small exception to that where you provide the benefit in the form of something like a t-shirt or another small incentive. Those can be excluded as what's called a de minimis fringe benefit. Uh, But even there, it's to be noted that if it's cash rather than something like a t-shirt, even a small amount of cash, that's going to be taxable. Now, there's a third type of benefit that's discussed in the uh, Chief Counsel Advice Memorandum that consists of refunds of part of the employee premium. So you may have a situation where, let's say, if employees agree to participate in the screening or if they complete a walking program, they get a lower premium. Their share of the cost of health insurance is lower than it would be if they didn't do that. Employers will often do that up front, but sometimes they give a refund after the fact. If, let's say, you complete the walking program, they will give you a refund of part of the premium that you paid. The tax status of those refunds depends on whether you were taxed originally. So let's say if the employee paid the premium through a cafeteria plan and then part of it was refunded, since the employee was never taxed on that amount, because the amounts that they elect to put into the cafeteria plan are tax-free, 
when they get the payment, that's going to be taxable to them. Should also mention there's another chief counsel advice memorandum. Should note that both of these memoranda are cited in the article that talks about abusive arrangements. And these are arrangements that are really set up to disguise large payments that are really compensation to employees. They try to disguise them as wellness program benefits. And the IRS describes some of these arrangements and concludes that they do not work and that the employees are taxable on these purported benefits. And again, I think you will, they're described in the article, but you will recognize them, uh, first of all, by the sort of disproportionate amounts involved and also just sort of under the general principle that if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. What other important rules apply to wellness programs and which agencies administer those rules? Okay, there are several non-discrimination rules that you have to watch out for. And a couple of the major ones are the Affordable Care Act, and before that HIPAA, prohibits discrimination based on a health factor. So that's one such you need to be careful of. There's also the Americans with Disabilities Act, prohibits discrimination based on a disability. Now, if you look at the way some wellness programs are designed, they would normally violate these rules. Let us say, for example, if you are giving a lower premium to, let's say, people with normal cholesterol versus people with higher cholesterol, that is discrimination based on a health factor. So ordinarily, it would violate the Affordable Care Act non-discrimination rules. They're, unlike the tax benefits, though, there are special exceptions for wellness programs from the non-discrimination rules. So if you meet the requirements for those exceptions, you can engage in some ta- activities that would otherwise be prohibited, but it's important to be very careful to satisfy the requirements for the exception. Okay, so what are the most important regulations, and are there differences between those regulations? Okay, there, there are a couple of important regulations here um, to look out for. One is the Affordable Care Act, the non-discrimination provision that prohibits discrimination based on a health factor. There are three departments that jointly administer most of the Affordable Care Act, Treasury Department, Labor, and HHS. Those agencies have issued non-discrimination rules that mostly parallel each other. So they are consistent with each other. And those regulations distinguish between what is referred to as health contingent wellness programs and participatory programs. And what they mean by a health contingent wellness program is a program where the individual has to satisfy a standard related to a health factor to obtain a reward or has to do more than a similarly situated individual without the health factor to obtain the same reward. So an example of a health contingent wellness program would be where the employer checks the employee's body mass index at the beginning of the year and provides a lower premium to employees whose BMI is within what, you know, what the employer considers a normal range. Uh, and then the employer then offers to other employees who have the higher BMI, a chance to participate in a walking program and obtain the same benefits. So you see here, 
employees with a lower BMI don't need to do the walking program. They just get the benefit right away. Employees with a higher BMI have to do more. That makes it a health contingent wellness program. The key is here, again, this would be straight-out discrimination based on a health factor, if not for the exception for wellness programs. And in order to qualify for that exception, the three department regulations have some key requirements. First is the total reward that's available to the employees with the more favorable health characteristics is limited to 30% of the total cost of coverage under the plan. So to give an illustration of how that works, let us say we've, you know, the program I just described. So employees with low BMI get uh, a lower rate. So let's say the total cost of coverage that the employer pays to the insurance company is $500 a month. And the employer charges people with low BMI $100 a month. For people with higher BMI who complete the walking program, the employer would have to provide the same premium, $100 a month. So they would not have to pay any more than people with a lower BMI. For employees with a higher BMI who don't complete the walking program, though, the employer is allowed to add on 30% of the total cost of the coverage. So, for example, if the people who complete the walking program are getting charged $100 a month, the total premium the employer is paying is $500, the employer can charge the employees who don't complete the walking program $250 a month. So it is $100 for the base premium plus 30% of the total cost. So that's point to note here. It's 30% of the total cost, not 30% of the employee premium. So in fact, they're paying more than double what uh, people who get the lower rate are. The other class of wellness programs Okay, actually, one point, other point I should mention is you also, you cannot simply say, we'll measure BMI at the beginning of the year and people with a high BMI get a higher rate and people with low BMI get a lower rate and that's that. That's not a wellness program. That's just straight up discrimination. And that would be prohibited by the regulations. It would not qualify for exception. If a wellness program is not health contingent, it's called a participatory wellness program that is not subject to this 30% limit. So for example, let us say if you require people to put uh, to complete a health risk assessment questionnaire uh, uh, at the beginning of the year, but you don't vary their premiums based on it, that is not a health contingent program. You're asking them about some items related to health, but you're not varying, you're not treating them less favorably depending on the answer. So that type of program is not subject to the 30% limit. The other, that's the three agency regulations. But now we've got the Americans with Disabilities Act generally prohibits employers from making disability-related inquiries or requiring medical examination unless the inquiry or examination is job-related and consistent with with business necessity. That's the general rule. But there is an exception to that rule for voluntary employee health program. Under final regs that the EEOC issued that became effective this year, the maximum reward for a program that either is health contingent or involves disability-related inquiries or a medical exam 
is limited to 30% of the cost of self-only coverage under the plan. So a key difference is the three agency regulations only impose limits on health contingent wellness programs. The EEOC regs impose limits uh, if you are making disability-related inquiries. So to go back to that example where, let's say, the employer is having people fill out a health risk assessment questionnaire at the beginning of the year, but is not varying the premium based on that, the three agency regulations would say, that's not health contingent, we're not, you know, we're not going to impose all these limits. The EEOC regulation would treat these as subject to uh, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act non-discrimination provision, and would impose limits. So that's a key difference between, and you need to check, a particular wellness program, depending on its design, may be subject to both sets of regulations, or neither set of regulations, or one but not the other. It all depends on the design. Wow, thank you. That is a lot of regulations to keep track of. Before we get to our final question, are there any court cases that employers need to think about? Uh, Yes, and actually there's a lot of ongoing litigation involving the EEOC's authority to promulgate regulations limiting the uh, incentives offered under wellness programs. And the EEOC is kind of fighting a two-front war. They've got On the one side, employers are saying that because of a safe harbor in the Americans with Disabilities Act, it's called the Insurance Safe Harbor, the EEOC doesn't have any authority to regulate incentives in employer uh, plans and and the wellness programs of employer plans. Coming at it from very much the opposite side is the AARP, which is arguing that yes, EEOC you have authority to regulate these incentives. And not only that, but the rules that you've promulgated that allow a 30% variation, those are too uh, loose. You need to tighten that. 30% is too much to allow. So they are. there's litigation from both sides. That you have no regulations or UEOC have no regulations or that you have the authority to do regulations, but your rules are too loose. To this point, there are four reported cases that have discussed the issue of whether there are limits, you know, on the EEOC's ability to promulgate regulations or to impose a 30% rule. Three of those cases involve the claims by the employer that because of the insurance safe harbor, Unlimited incentives are allowed in employer plans for wellness programs. The three cases, none of them actually came out with the position that the EEOC is espousing. Two of the cases found that the insurance case safe harbor applies. Therefore, the EEOC has no uh, authority to regulate incentives. The third case found that, yes, EEOC has authority to regulate incentives, but a 100% incentive, which is much more than the 30% the EOC allows, is permissible. On the other side, a case involving AARP, where they came in and said, EOC, you need to tighten up on the 30% standard, was decided. And the court found it didn't rule on whether 30% is right or wrong. What it said is, EEOC, you haven't explained how you got to this 30% standard. And it therefore remanded the case to the EEOC 
to consider further uh, and explain its reasoning, either to maintain the standard or possibly to change the standard, but either way to explain the rationale for why they got to a particular standard. Uh, so the EEOC is now considering that. They have it under remand. They've told the court that they intend to issue new proposed regulations by August 2018 and new final rules by October 2019. And uh, that in the meantime, the existing regulations remain in place. And that's a key point, that even though the court found that the EOC had failed to explain why 30% is appropriate, it did not invalidate the regulation. So while the EOC is doing this reconsideration, the existing regulations stay in place. And so I think the key takeaway from this is, first of all, this is going to be an ongoing process. There may be the, you know, the court decision requiring that remanded is under the AARP's argument that the rules are too loose. There may also be further leg, reg, uh, litigation over the employer's position that EOC has no authority. But for the meantime, since the regulations remain in place, and since the cases that have gone against the EOC have not really gotten to the core of the final regulations because those weren't fully into in effect until this year. So I think it would be prudent for employers to continue to abide by the EEOC regulations until the litigation and the regulatory process of the EEOC play themselves out. Okay, so that leads actually leads into my final question, which is what should employers do when offering a wellness program for now, both from a design and a compliance point of view? Okay, I think first thing to do is to step back from everything we've been discussing here, which is the legal requirements. The legal requirements are very important, and tax benefits are important, and certainly compliance with things like non-discrimination rules is, is very important. But the first step you want to take is, how do I design a wellness program that will achieve my objectives? And what employers are typically looking for when they're implementing a program is, I want to improve employees' health, I want to improve productivity, I want to reduce my medical costs, and I want to do that in a cost-effective manner. So the first thing is to figure out a program that works from a business perspective and from an employee welfare perspective before you go on to, you know, to check which, whether that will work. The next step is if you are treating employees with health conditions less favorably in some way than employees without these health conditions, such as by providing lower premiums or requiring them to do a walking program or whatever, or if you are asking, uh, you know, imposing a questionnaire or a medical exam, you need to check, are the, am I complying with the non-discrimination rules? Do the conditions that I have stay within the limits that are allowed for uh, employer plans under both the three agency regulations and the EOC regulations, depending on which ones I may be subject to? Then the final step would be to consider the tax treatment of the incentives. Uh, that you're providing and to try to determine whether those incentives will be tax-free to the employee or if they're taxable and I may have to do withholding and FICA and so forth. Point to note about this is the other considerations are 
uh, you know, outcome determinative. They're critical. I need to have something that makes sense from a business perspective. I need to comply with the non-discrimination rules. The tax benefit is an important consideration, but it may not be dispositive. You may find that there are incentives that work for you from a business perspective and improve your program, and that may be worth doing even if they are uh, taxable income to the employees. All right. Well, Alan, thank you very much. That was a lot of information about a very important thing that a lot of employers are offering. So again, you can read more about this in your article. And thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloomberg Tax and subscribe to Talking Tax on iTunes or SoundCloud. Tune in next time for more discussions on today's hot tax issues with leading practitioners.